Welcome to the latest edition of Women Rabbis Talk, a podcast where women rabbis talk to women rabbis about being women rabbis. I am Rabbi Marcy Bellows. And I'm Rabbi Emma Gottlieb. And we are so excited that you've tuned in to listen to us and join us for our continued exploration of women rabbis. Talking. Talking. Marcy. <laughs> <laughs> What are you thinking about? Now I'm thinking about redundancy. Um, Besides how funny I am. (laughs) So this week I am thinking about raising a Jewish kid and raising a child who hopefully will enjoy being Jewish. My son is three and a half and really starting to be cognizant of going to temple and more and more he understands that mom has a special role there, though he doesn't quite understand that he is not able to be with me up on the Bima at all at all times, and that he also doesn't own the Bima, but we're working on that. And hoping that he enjoys this stuff and doesn't come to resent being a clergy kid, which I know, you know, I am in so many ways, and Emma, I know you are. I just want him to, yeah, to enjoy being Jewish to be proud of it, especially because in the area in which we live, he'll be the one Jewish kid in his class. Maybe there will be one more. But as of right now, he gets so excited when it's Shabbat and he loves having the challah and he loves singing the Jewish songs. And I just hope that that sweetness stays. And I have no idea what's to come, but that's something I'm thinking a lot about. I I will say at least that with the exception of one, all of my earliest childhood memories of being in the shul are positive. Actually, two. There's two. One is a, um, a traumatic memory of being, I was in the, the nursery school at the shul when I was very little. And my dad's office, when he was the director of education, the window looked out onto the playground. And so I would like bang on the window and cry when he wouldn't pay attention to me. And I remember that. And I was probably three. And I also remember the year that he dressed up as cats for Purim, all the rabbis, the clergy dressed up as cats, like from the musical. And I was also very young and this like large, scary, fluffy monster type thing came and took me out of my mother's arms. And I remember that. But otherwise, I have very positive associations from a young age of being a rabbi's kid. And all the baggage comes later. So these are the good, (laughs) these are the golden years. (laughs) I hope so. I hope he loves being in the building. And, you know, there's a wonderful preschool playroom in there. What's fascinating in our congregation is even though we had a decline in religious school enrollment in some of the elementary school years, we have this huge group of little ones and toddlers. We have like as many kids as are in K through seven, we have that many toddlers. Uh, and so it's going to be neat to see. And it's happening in the local schools as well. Um, they're observing the same phenomenon. So it's it's indicative of something going on in our area here in Connecticut. So we have a lot of babies coming up and, and cuties. So that's been really sweet. What about you? What are you thinking about? I'm thinking about how annoyed I get when people refer to me as the lady rabbi. 
which um, here in South Africa is a common, um, a common occurrence. Um, and um, I, I'm not, I don't have the same reaction when people say woman, woman rabbi or female rabbi. Um, but when people say lady rabbi, it gets my hackles up. Um, and I don't, I don't really know why. Um, I'm not, I'm not opposed to lady in other contexts, like all the ladies, all the single ladies, like all the Beyonce ladies. But when people say lady rabbi, I cringe. I don't know why. And I've been thinking a lot about it. I'm trying to, to figure out what it is that's rubbing me the wrong way with it because I've tried to say to people, I've tried to ask people to say woman rabbi or female rabbi and not lady rabbi, but it's, it's not going well. So that's what I'm thinking about. So what do you think as you've been trying to figure out like what it is about it? Why is lady different? I'm not sure. To me, there's something about when they say lady rabbi that feels like it's carrying more of a, a judgment or a, I don't know, I feel more boxed in by it mm. than, I, than I do by woman rabbi. Is it more um, diminishing in some way? Maybe. Or, yeah, I, it, it makes me feel like I should be wearing like a, like a, a skirt suit and drinking tea while I'm studying Torah. I don't know. It just feels different. I don't know. If I figure it out, I'll report back. We look forward to that. And maybe our listeners will have some insights too as to what makes lady rabbi sound or feel a little different from yeah. women rabbi or female rabbi yeah. or just plain yeah, old please, rabbi. If anyone has insight into my own head, <laughs> that would be amazing. Please, please write in, call in, send us a voicemail. And we're going to officially introduce Rabbi Jill Zimmerman in just a moment. But what do you think? Do you have any thoughts on the lab, the lady rabbi question? You know, I just think there's a bunch of different words that, you know, to some people feel questionable and other people not. So female rabbi feels a little bit differently to me than lady rabbi. Lady kind of seems, I guess my connotation with lady is always be a lady as if, you're supposed to be proper and ladylike. And and I just feel like it's not so much a name that women use to refer to themselves, but that other people refer to women as ladies from a certain generation. At least it feels like that. I don't know if that's true in South Africa, but it feels like it's true. There's a whole big thing about lady, be a lady. There was an episode on girls about it towards the end. I think it's also that there isn't a male equivalent. Mm -hmm. Like nobody would say, are you the Lord rabbi? Like, <laughs> right. like if we're a woman rabbi or a female rabbi, it's just for me, those just feel like distinguishing terms right. to help differentiate if and when there's a need to do that. But lady rabbi feels to me unnecessary, like a over and above that. There isn't, like, you wouldn't say to a man, like, oh, he, he's the fancy man rabbi. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, there just isn't an equivalent. And I think maybe that's why it bothers me. I mean, I think it also could be either a generational thing. That's one of the things I wouldn't be super offended about. It would make me want to ask the person in a, in a nice way. Why do you, why did you use that term? I'm just really curious because for them, it may, for someone else, it could be a respectful, it feel, it could feel more respectful than saying woman. Definitely. And South Africa is still more 
patriarchal than yeah. North America, for sure. And I hear people, I mean, I do think some of it is, is cultural that I, I, you know, I've heard people say like, oh, it was a lady police officer and a, a lady mail carrier, whatever, you know, so, so I think some of it is just the way that the cultural nuances is rubbing up against me, but, but it sometimes feels like more than that. So yeah, anyway, that's what I'm thinking about. So interesting. Is it a culture clash? Is it a generational difference? Is it a gender bias? Yeah. Cool. Mm. Good question. We've already had a chance to hear from her. Our guest this episode is Rabbi Jill Zimmerman. Rabbi Jill Berkson Zimmerman creates welcoming, inclusive spiritual experiences that open hearts and build Jewish community. In 2011, she founded the Jewish Mindfulness Network, as well as an online subscription-based community called Hineni, the Mindful Heart Community. Today, Rabbi Jill is a popular rabbi at large and scholar in residence, who teaches spiritual approaches to core Jewish holy days and holidays, officiates at Jewish life cycle events such as weddings, baby namings, and funerals, and provides personalized spiritual guidance and teaching to individuals. And I know we want to hear all about all of that today. First, please tell us throughout our conversation today, what would you like us to call you? You know, (laughs) I'm going to answer this in two different ways. I mean, given the fact that I'm talking to you, too, as colleagues and friends, it feels most natural for you to call me Jill, okay? In the work that I do when I'm out working, I do appreciate being called Rabbi Jill. And I want to say something about that. It kind of relates to what Emma was saying, is that I have just been very aware of the conversation among us women rabbis about the different ways that we are called and treated versus male rabbis. And it seems like it's a really interesting dynamic that male rabbis will walk into a room and people will either call them rabbi last name or they'll just call them rabbi, where with women, people are much more comfortable saying either just calling us by our first names or rabbi first name. From our conversations of women rabbis, I know that it's an issue and part it feels like the last vestiges of, you know, having a valid place in the Jewish world that I try to use the rabbi word, even though I'm much more of a casual person and I you can call me whatever you want. But that's how I would answer. Thank you, Jill. So tell us, please, how and why you chose to become a rabbi and some of the different roles and positions you've had so far in your career. I I got more interested deeply in Judaism in the later part of my life. You know, I knew that I wanted to be connected to Jewish community, even though my husband and I had spent a whole bunch of time searching for spirituality in other places. I mean, I grew up in Skokie, Illinois. Yeah, I know, Marcy, you did too. And we've never, I don't think we've really had a chance to unpack that. Not enough, no. (laughs) We should, we should, because for me, growing up in Skokie was basically a completely secular, assimilated experience. And so here I was 
looking, always being this deep thinker, looking for the meaning of life, et cetera. And I could find it, there was no indication that, that those answers or that pathway was to be found within Judaism. <laughs> so the world that I grew up in in Skokie, Illinois, even though it was, I don't know, 70% Jewish, was a very, a, a world in which assimilation was the name of the game. And so as I got older, I started looking into meditation and mindfulness and yoga and other spiritual teachings. And it was when, when my husband and I had decided to have had kids, we began to look for a Jewish community. And at that point, I all I really wanted was friends. I wanted friends. We had moved to Seattle at that time and we knew nobody. And so I thought the best way to make friends and connect with people was through the synagogue and to join a Havara. In fact, I wanted to join the Havara I didn't necessarily want to join the temple. I just wanted to join the Chavara. Anyway, we joined the temple, and it turned out that I got really involved in sisterhood and in temple life, and so became then temple president, I mean, sisterhood president, and then was on the national board of Women of Reformed Judaism and the executive board, actually, of Women of Reformed Judaism. And so I had gotten involved in a national leadership role in the reform movement. Around that point, I had I met at a family camp in Seattle, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, who, you know, basically like in one day, I feel like my entire life changed because he just opened up. I remember we studied the very beginning of Breshit and we took, you know, an hour and a half on the very first verse of <laughs> In the beginning, and I, I just was in tears, and I felt like, how has this has been here? How, how did I not know? How did I not know that this, this kind of level of depth and meaning, was in my own backyard, and no one even told me that it was there, and I had no idea how to look. So, really, from that moment on, of that family camp experience when our kids were little, I um, started getting deeper, deeper into every subject that I was troubled by, <laughs> God and prayer, all those things. I just dived in really deep. I did everything that Rabbi Kushner told me to do, meaning he said, Jill, I really think you should learn Hebrew. So I learned Hebrew, et cetera, et cetera. So it led me to having an adult bat mitzvah and then applying to rabbinic school when I was 47. And I kind of thought, you know, I have two halves of my life, this half where I'm raising my kids, even though my kids weren't totally grown, and the second half where I could really, I just fell in love with everything about Jewish study and wisdom, and so I felt like this could be the second half of my life, so that's how I decided to go to Hebrew Union College. And so since ordination, what have you been doing? I was hired at Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills with Rabbi Laura Geller, who was a wonderful mentor. I had been a student rabbi there, a student rabbi in various congregations around the country. And so I worked at Temple Emmanuel for around four years in total. And I had also at that point gotten involved with the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. 
and had taken their rabbinic leadership program in mindfulness and spiritual practice. And I also took their program on being a Jewish meditation teacher. And I just felt like in my connection with the way that the learning was at the Institute, that it was exactly the kind of rabbinate that I wanted to have. I felt like it found me. So, I mean, I'd always been spiritually oriented since I, like I said, since I was little. And I felt like I was put here to be a rabbi that was focused on mindfulness and spiritual practices and really, really using the enormous wisdom and stories from the Jewish tradition in terms of applying them to our own personal lives to help us be the best people that we can be and to heal the world. So I I realized then that I needed to, I, I didn't feel like I could do that work t- as much as I wanted it to be as a congregational rabbi. And so I left the congregational world to launch out into the unknown territory of being an independent rabbi, rabbi at large. But it felt like this is what my path is supposed to be. And even though there is there ha- there has not been and there still is not any kind of role model or there's a, a bunch of us that are doing independent rabbinates, but there's no one path. I will, I want to add also that one of the reasons that I have gone out on my own is that in 2006, when I was in rabbinic school, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. And I'm, I'm positive it was because of the codes class. Oh, that no. just, I mean, I do think that there was a definite level of stress that pushed me into getting that diagnosis. And even though I would have, I would say that I'm either mostly in remission or fully in remission, I have RA in a mild sense. I really need to be able to control my schedule. So when things are too stressful or there's just a lot of work in a row, like after high holidays, I have to be able to then rest, even if it's 20 minutes that seems to be how I can stay healthy. And my concern was, you know, when I was at the congregation, I got really sick because that unrelenting schedule, unrelenting was just not healthy for me. So becoming an independent rabbi has enabled me to keep more physically healthy to, to you know, be in remission and not in a flare up all the time. You have taken your rabbinate online in many ways. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what um, first inspired you to start creating Jewish learning experiences online? So when I first left the congregation and I started the Jewish Mindfulness Network, which now has morphed into Path with Heart, and I'm still teaching Hineni, I, I knew that I wanted to teach online because... Before I went to rabbinic school, I had a master's in education and I had been teaching around the country various things. And so I had developed a mailing list of people who were interested in learning with me. And so I had someone who I was working with who was like a business coach. And she came up with that idea to say, why don't you start an online membership community? I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I started Hineni, I think it was now 
three or four years ago. And at first we were just speaking on the phone. So I would lead sessions on the phone and we had a Facebook group where we would also discuss the different themes that we were talking about. And now we are meeting on Zoom so people can see each other. And there are people from all over the world that come together, people who are interested in spirituality. It's really, really fabulous to meet people from all over the world to connect together in this medium. It's a miracle. It's like the fact that we're all speaking right now from different locations. I mean, with all the complaints about technology, and I know there are some people who feel like they don't want to learn that way. I feel like it's the best thing ever. Professor Danny Matt, who's actually going to be a speaker in my new upcoming Hinani program, we just started a whole new cohort this week. When he started teaching online, I think it was maybe six months ago. I mean, it was amazing to be able to study with this one, like the major scholar in the world right now on the Zohar and Kabbalah to study with him. It's like, okay, I know we're not in the same room, but it is so cool. Has the element of mindfulness and meditation always been a theme throughout your teachings? And how does that get incorporated into the stuff that you do online? I would say that mindfulness is a theme in everything that I do. It's just basically my approach to life. What I would say is that I teach Judaism through the lens of mindfulness, and I teach mindfulness through the lens of Judaism. Being mindful, I mean, means different things to different people, but it just means really being honest and present in the moment and accepting accepting this moment as it is, knowing that these moments change. And I think being present in our lives is one of the most, for me, is one of the most important things that I can do with my time on the planet. I can make a conscious decision about what my actions are going to be. So it has to come from a place of self-awareness. How do you go about increasing your mindfulness? I mean, other than meditation? One way of being more mindful, another way, which is not meditation, is beginning to notice the good in your life having a spiritual practice of gratitude, which is so Jewish, by the way, not just Oprah, but (laughs) like we started it, so to speak, waking up in the morning and looking for what's good rather than what's not working. That's a spiritual practice that I consider mindfulness because it means that, you know, mindfulness is not just telling the truth about where you are in this moment, but you have to widen the lens to say, well, it is true that I'm waking up and I'm feeling really sad. And I'm going to keep widening that and look, oh, look, there's a really cool tree that's blooming that I never saw before outside my window. And so including all of that is becoming, it's just widening your awareness. You know, in addition to your your wonderful offerings on, on Zoom and on Facebook, you also have an immense Twitter following. <laughs> and it's incredible to watch. And I, I mean, I'm very active on Twitter, and I've been since the early days. But then I look at you, 
And you are able to have an incredible amount of activism and have so much to say about the current administration from a Jewish point of view. And you'll get thousands of likes and replies. And I'm just wondering, what's that been like for you to to have a rabbinate on Twitter? And, you know, what's been positive? What's been negative? How has that part of your your rabbinate been for you? My unpaid Twitter rabbinate. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I love Twitter. I love Twitter for a bunch of different reasons. I feel like like Twitter is the place to be around political issues. And I myself have found it to be such a source of affirmation about the things that I'm particularly outraged about and meeting other people who are also concerned about what's going on around family separations, the Muslim ban, et cetera, things that I just never imagined that we'd be living with in this country. A lot, I don't want to say a lot, most of them being a pushing up against my own Jewish values. And so I have felt like it's really, really important for me to speak out about those issues because I don't at at this point, which I may at some point soon, when I form a nonprofit, I don't have a board. So I don't have anyone. And I think that has given me tremendous freedom because I don't have anyone being upset or concerned about that you can't say this and you can't say that. What I try to do on Twitter is a couple different things. Number one, I try to speak the truth from my perspective. I try to match that with of deeper value that is not just Jewish, but that other people of all different religions might connect to. I try to be kind. So my real name is up there. I'm aware that if I had a fake name, where a lot of people on Twitter have fake names, I might feel like looser about swearing or anything like that or being snarky. There's a lot of snark on Twitter. And I just feel like, you know, I'm out there as Rabbi Jill Zimmerman. I need to kind of live up to that Mm -hmm. title and that way of being. And so I'm not that snarky. I mean, I am sometimes, okay, but not a huge amount. And I also feel like what happens on Twitter is that there are some days that are really difficult, like a whole bunch of very painful things are going on and people are freaking out. And somehow I'm pretty quick. So I get, I tune in and I get a sense of what the zeitgeist is, you know, like there's a lot of depression. And then I'll do something like intentionally add one of my dog videos, which is one of the things that gets thousands of likes. I mean, one of the things I've learned from Twitter is that as concerned as people are, it is important to also add joy and laughter. And so I really try to, you know, I'll add, I will notice that there's certain dynamic going on in the community of difficulty or challenge. And I will add, you know, a beautiful photo of roses and say something like, look around, you know, just to lift up the energy and not to ignore what people are upset about. But it was also that that question of like that thing I was saying before about widening the lens. Hmm. Mm. And the other thing is that I don't think about Twitter as just a place for me to broadcast. And this is, I think, what happens in the interactions. But when someone responds to me, I feel like I need to respond to them. And even if it is, I mean, it's usually just a heart It's just usually liking what they said, because I feel like if someone takes the time to respond to something I said, 
I want to basically say, I hear you. And so I know that not everyone does that, which I understand because at a certain point, it's hard to do that if you get a lot of responses. But I don't feel right about not giving something back to people. And then because of doing that, I think that the engagement makes it feel more community-like, that at least you know that you're being heard. I want to respond to people who are good enough to respond to me. Mm-hmm. So it feels it, more like engagement. Yeah, it's like hineni uh, shamati, like showing mm-hmm. up for each other and declaring our ability to be present with hineni and then right. shamati, I hear you. Yeah. Um, that's such a fascinating way of thinking about Twitter in particular. I'm I'm not on Twitter. I used to be. And I got off Twitter because for me, it was too much and too dark sometimes. And um, I, I mean, I've heard so many other people describe it as like, it's like the slums of social media. Um, um, and uh, and I, it's it's refreshing to hear you talk about it in, in the way that you're talking about it. And it is reassuring to know that there is at least one person out there on Twitter trying to set a, an example and raise the bar a little yeah. bit and uh, elevate the conversation and model appropriate and beautiful ways of interacting with one another on social media. So good for you. I have found an interesting difference in 21st century rabbinets is the role that social media plays in our work. And you'll hear other generations of rabbis not understanding, you know, the the way that our work has be has truly become 24/7 in certain ways and we you know talk about being mindful, we have to be mindful about shutting off our phones or shutting off Facebook or Twitter. On one hand, I've had people reach out to me on Facebook or on Twitter who would never Mm -hmm. feel the bravery to reach out in real life. You know, on the other hand, it's easy to be up all night responding to people on email and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, um, how do you how do you balance that? Well, I'm pretty good at turning off the phone. I don't respond on Twitter. I don't go on Twitter on Shabbat. I send a Shabbat message on Friday nights, on Friday afternoon, and then I am off till Saturday night. So that is really helpful. There, There's a, you know, I'll tell you something. I get a lot of people who write me on Twitter in private messages and want to have a conversation. You know, I will have somewhat of a conversation, but then if they want to talk more, then that's, you know, a spiritual counseling conversation. But I also get a lot of people who said that I have one parent who's Jewish and I never learned about Judaism. <laughs> There are people who've written me on Twitter and say they want to convert to Judaism. They're thinking about it. So like, you know, I want to respond to those questions. And how do I balance? I I think it's a struggle. I, I just say it's a struggle. I also realize that I can't be on all the different platforms. So I would say my main platform is Twitter and Facebook. Those are the, the two platforms. I just started a group. I've started a couple different groups on Facebook. You know, I just taught a course called How to Navigate Challenging Times. And the reason I did, it was a free video course that's over now, but I will be offering it again in the future. And I I, I did this four-session video course because I could see the level of upset of people concerns around our world, whether it's climate change or whether it's family separation. I mean, there's so there's so many issues to be concerned about. I realize that for most of the people that I know, people are dealing with, if they're awake, 
okay, if they're awake and haven't put their head in the stands, they're concerned about the world, the different issues in the world, on top of our own stuff that people go through, whether it's chronic illness or an acute illness or getting married, getting divorced, retiring. I mean, all the usual transitions and challenges and relationships, et cetera. So this has become such a pressure cooker of a time. And so the course that I designed was to help people see that there are Jewish themed texts and pieces of wisdom that can really help us be more mindful during these times, how to take care of ourselves, and also how to seek meaning in pressure cooker times like this whether that's personal or whether it's concerns about the the country. I mean, really, everyone I know has both going on. Wow. I imagine a lot of rabbis are trying to figure out how to answer that question and how to guide people through that conversation in lots of different ways. I know I am. And it's so compelling to think about how to reach people in different ways, in different spaces, and engage them in that conversation. So what's next for you? What are you working on next? Well, I've revamped my the Hineni community in a really new and exciting way. And I'm including guest speakers and also much more, a lot of practical ways to take the spiritual practices and the texts that we're learning into our own lives. So that's the next thing that I'm working on. But the other thing I'm working on is I'm going to be putting together like a daily inspirational email, like a bit of joy or wisdom or love or humor in your email Mm. box every morning. Great. So it'll be like a subscription. And so as soon as I was done with doing this for a video course, because that was a huge amount of work and really wonderful, because now I have that. Now I'm going to turn my attention to both the Hineni program to really serving people in that community, as well as developing this subscription. So the best way for people to connect with me for either, for any of the stuff that I do, I also teach some signature classes. So I do teach spiritual preparation for High Holy Days. I also teach um, a journey class, walk through the Omer, spiritual journey through the Omer and I have taught a mindful summer. So I have mm. a variety of different classes. But the best way to find out about those is to join my mailing list, which you can do so at my on my website. Which is? My website is R-A-V-R-A-V-J-I-L-L, J-I-L-L, ravjill.com. Great. Okay. Wonderful. Awesome. <laughs> Ravjill.com. We will we'll check it out. I'm sure other people will too. I'm sure. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Rabbi Jill. And you can find me on Facebook on my rabbi page. So I post a lot of articles and And you have always wonderful things to say. I love following you on Twitter especially. I love having just the opportunity to see like what's she thinking today and what does she have the guts to say that I can't say publicly. (laughs) I I almost I almost want to rejoin Twitter just to follow you, but I don't think I'm going to. But Uh-oh. if I do, it will be because of you. Uh-oh. Look out for when she uses all caps. I mean, that's really, you know, when something really serious is happening. <laughs> yeah, you know, the thing is, is that I I write 
how I speak, you know, so when I'm in all caps, it's not necessarily that I'm yelling, but you can see that I have bumped it up a little. For the love of God! <laughs> I know. Well, so each episode we have an Ask the Rabbi segment. And when we selected this question, I didn't know how relevant it would truly be to you and your story. And so we have a question from Hannah Grippo, who asks, how does a woman begin the journey of becoming a rabbi? And you had such a fascinating journey. And so, you know, thinking more in general, uh, what would you say? I would say the very first thing is to start learning in whatever it is that you're interested in. And to be in lots of different Jewish situations. So to go and visit and to just really pay attention inside to what you feel connected to, who you feel drawn to, and then to kind of search out your own passions, not just what you what you want to learn more about, but also what you have difficulty with. It's important to do the work your own self on your own spiritual being if you're going to be a rabbi, right? So, because people are going to come to you with their questions about God, for example, big complicated topic in Judaism. It's really, really good before you are in a position of being a rabbi that you yourself have struggled with. And maybe it's not, maybe that's not a struggle with you, for you, but for many people it is. And to do your own personal work around it and to seek out conversations or around prayer, find some teachers that you connect with that teachers that see your gift, that see your light. Aselech Arav, right? I was just going to say that, Mars. Right? Find yourself a rabbi and get yourself a friend. Yeah. Good one, Emma. I love it. Oh, we have both here. It's so nice. So, Jill, the last thing to take you through is our questionnaire Maher, our rapid fire, or as a recent guest pointed out, not so rapid fire questions. Okay. Okay. If you don't like one or you don't have an answer, you can just say pass. All right. So, who was your first woman rabbi, either in your home synagogue or that you were first aware of? I'm going to say, I'm going to say Laura Geller. But I know that she wasn't my first. I can't remember. All I know, and Emma, you weren't there at this time because we were with the, we were together in the first year. But in in the second or the third year, there was a discussion in my. We were in Bible. Okay, we were having to read some of the early feminist writing by Sabino Tubal and early teacher, early early Jewish feminists. And there was the conversation among some of my younger classmates who said, aren't we done with this? Do we still have, do we still have to be reading this stuff? They can't write. They were like critical. And I started to cry. <clears throat> and so I said, I said, look at, um, we are in this room together as you know, we're all in our second year, what third year, whatever of rabbinic school. I was almost old enough to be their moms, but not, Totally. I mean, I maybe could have been, but I said, we're here in this same generation. When I grew up, I didn't see one woman rabbi. And so for you to say at your age, are we done with this? I'm telling you, we are not done with this. It is, it was hard for me to answer that question. Who was the first woman rabbi? Because of course I never knew any rabbi growing up. So I'm trying to think about high school, college. It wouldn't really be till I was um, in my thirties. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
So tell us about a woman that inspires you, Jewish or otherwise. I'm going to say Rachel Adler inspires me, um, who was my liturgy professor at HUC, you know, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Adler. And I think that she just inspires me because of her commitment to the truth, her bravery from being kind of first out with some really innovative ideas like the Brit Ahuvim and her book, Engendering Judaism. And she's just such a brilliant thinker and has a kind, compassionate heart. Can you yeah. explain what the Brit Ahuvim is for our listeners who are not familiar with the it? The Brit Ahuvim is a form of more egalitarian marriage. It's a, it's a covenant of love. It, is, it, it has stripped away any of the aspects of ownership in marriage. And she just created some new rituals around getting married that are very egalitarian. So fill in the blank. Being a woman rabbi is or women rabbis are? I would say are changing the face of Judaism. Ooh, I love that. Thank you. What do you think would surprise people to learn about women rabbis? That we're just like regular people. I mean, we swear, we get mad, we get arguments. Um, so favorite Jewish character from a book, movie, or TV show? Okay, so I'm going to, there's this scene in Annie Hall where, where they go to her family and they go to his family. And when they go to her family, it's all this proper, I don't know, Episcopalian, whatever. Oh, everyone is sitting properly with their napkins on their seat. You know, everything is lined up, crystal, whatever. And then they show a clip to Woody Allen's family where basically his family is, they're having dinner. They live under the train tracks. And so, <laughs> where in her family they're saying, "Can you can you please pass the salt?" And then in his family they're like, "Not only the train is rumbling, but everyone's yelling at each other." And someone says, "You want the salt?" And they throw it to them. And I would always joke to say that that seemed like my husband and my family. You know, even though even though his what my fam- husband is Jewish, but there is this. My family was just this kind of what you see is what you get, and people are arguing and yelling and you know it was just informal loud and kind of fun and there was just something very raw and real and and I just think I think about that a lot that being real is an important value I guess awesome. that's the answer to the question the rabbi what would about what to know about when rabbis is they're just it's just real a Jewish text teaching or value that inspires you or informs your life I guess it would be about seeking justice and that that has been, I mean, that's one of the amazing things about my coming into Judaism is that I have cared about justice ever since I was little, but I did not know, seriously, did not know that that was a Jewish value. I would say that it feels like the, the principle of seeking justice and healing the world is my most important value. So I think about that a lot. So uh, what are you thinking about these days, Jill? I'm thinking about the historical time that we're in in this country. Um, This is where um, are we really going to hold certain people accountable for their actions? I feel like this is a incredibly serious time in the country. And so I am 
really hoping and praying that our democracy is going to hold. And I'm also thinking about individuals and how we hold ourselves up during this time. I think things are, in a way, may get worse before they get better. And so I am concerned about that. So I think we have to be really as loving to ourselves as we can and also to each other. Because I think a lot of people are scared. And I understand we're dealing with some very dark stuff, you know, that we have never dealt with before. We're in a dark time. And I mean, I'm committed to bringing light, you know, as much as possible. And the more of us that do that, I believe and I have faith. But it's really on my mind that we're in a serious time and are we going to come up to it and live in truth and make it through this? Oh, yeah. Rabbi Rabbi. Jill shining a light into the Twitterverse (laughs) in dark times. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jill Zimmerman, for taking the time to share your light and your guidance with us, your heart and soul. It has been such an honor and pleasure to speak with you and to learn from you today. Thank you for sharing earlier in our episode the ways that people can reach you. Can you just repeat one more time your website and your Twitter handle? So you can reach me at my website at ravjill.com, R-A-V-J-I-L-L. Dot com and and the best way to find out about all the stuff that I'm doing is to sign up for my email list which you can do at my website or you can write me directly which you can contact me from my website and my Twitter handle if you're brave is at Rabbi Jill awesome awesome thank you yeah. so much you're welcome thank you. Well, thank you so much what a great thing to talk to you Thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Women Rabbis Talk. You can be in touch with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash womenrabbistalk and on Instagram at womenrabbispodcast or by sending us an email to womenrabbispodcast that's womenrabbispodcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at anchor.f M slash women rabbis podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback and don't forget to submit your ask the rabbi questions. Thanks so much to Seth Lindenman and to John Claude Haynes from C Robin Tech for their help with sound tech setup. Our music is written by Aviva Chernick and performed by Jaffa Road. Our podcast is hosted on anchor.fm and is available more or less wherever you find other awesome podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, review, and of course, return and join us again soon. And we edit this ourselves. So a big thanks to you, Emma. And thanks to you, Marcy. And with that, we are out.
amazing. 